Does anybody see what I see? They want me to quit. They say, John, give up the fight. Still to England I say, good night forever, good night. For I have crossed the Rubicon. Let the bridge be burned behind me. Come what may, come what may. Commitment! Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, May 3rd, 2020. My name is James Marino and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is the founder and editor of KestAlbumReviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at FileSpotPhoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. So, Michael, you sent along to us uh, a link from the New York Times from a few weeks ago called Your Cast Album Starter Guide. And uh, certainly it's something that we should have mentioned the the other week when we talked about our favorite cast albums. But this uh, (laughs) article by Jesse Green and Ben Brantley brought up a number of good points and uh, but I, uh, a few things I might disagree with so <laughs> I, 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 I sort of have a feeling you guys might disagree as well especially with uh, uh, number four I particularly have a problem with it. let me give you the first uh, well I'll, I'll give you the six uh, over, and we'll talk about it for a brief minute it says um, do get the original cast album mm, okay sure no, do do buy every cast album. But as I, as I mentioned, you know, I have all of the Starlet Expresses. Uh, number two, <laughs> don't shuffle, pause, or mutilate. Uh, number three, do excise any dialogue tracks. Number four, don't read the liner notes. Uh, that was weird. That. Yeah. I have a problem with that. Yeah. So, number five, do choose your listening companions with care. Yes, um, I choose not to listen with anybody. And number six, don't... <laughs> well, at first, a couple of times, you know. You know, I, I can't be distracted. Number six, don't play a cast recording as background music at a party. Uh, that's uh, tough. So, uh, Michael, Peter, um, uh, what, what, what say you? <laughs> well, my first response um, comes in number one, where he talks about the fact that uh, the 1968 Funny Girl film soundtrack <laughs> is in many ways an improvement on the 64 cast album. Ironically enough, the night before this, um, <clears throat> this story broke, I was watching the Funny Girl movie and um, again thinking, wow, it's so interesting that she plays with the music so much. She mm-hmm. often um, doesn't sing the actual notes that Julie Stein wrote. And there was much consternation during the run of Funny Girl on Broadway that uh, she, uh, by the way, I'm speaking of Barbara Streisand, not Kay Medford, um, that she indeed um, was bored with the show and um, didn't turn in good performances. I have to say I saw it a year and a half into the 
yeah, uh, into the run, and I thought she was fine, but that's another story. The fact remains is that uh, this really is proof that she was bored with the show because um, she did so much improvisation on the um, actual music. So I like the cast out much better than the soundtrack, much better indeed, because we do get the notes as written. Uh, I also miss a few of the songs that I think are terrific. One of the songs that worked best in the pre-Broadway tryout that I saw in January of 64 was who taught her everything she knows. And that of course is not in the movie. And um, while I will admit that I want to be seen with you as a throwaway song, I think it's a terrific one. That one wasn't in Boston when I saw it. It was a terrific addition. So on the other hand too, I love um, I'd rather be blue, uh, which is in the soundtrack and not on the cast album because it's not a Julie Stein, Bob Merrill song. And losing the music that makes me dance, as good as my man is, the music that makes me dance is such a magnificent song, one of Julie Stein's best, that I missed that too. So I'm very surprised that both these guys apparently uh, came to an agreement on this. I would think even if one of them objected that, um, that it wouldn't have been the example they used. But boy, that one really, really, really um, struck out to me as um, something that is certainly not accurate at all. So, Michael... What's your thoughts you, on that? Yeah, when I read that number one, I I, I literally went. Oh, I thought <laughs> I said of all albums to pick, as of mm. all examples to pick. I mean, I think there are. I, I think there are maybe some ways, some small ways in which the soundtrack is better. I always thought that um, she had figured out a uh, a, a more f- a funnier and more natural way to do. I'm the greatest star. Uh, on the on the soundtrack than on the original cast recording, and it's funny. I, I remember not long ago we were talking about um, there is a uh, recording of Streisand's final performance on Broadway in Funny Girl, and uh, on that recording, "I'm the Greatest Star" is much closer to the uh, film performance in terms of the tempo, the speed, uh, and the timing. So I think she was uh, already starting to work out something different there. But I, uh, I generally agree with, uh, with almost everything Peter said, so I don't think uh, I need to, we need to belabor that anymore. I think there are other, probably other choices of certainly uh, other examples where the original cast recording is not the best. Some of the older recordings were very truncated because of only a certain amount of material being able to fit on LPs and some or 78. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, And some of the, uh, and also similarly, some of the older ones because the sound quality back in the day was was so poor, but I don't think that funny girl would be be the one I would pick. Uh, I do agree with um, don't shuffle, pause or mutilate, but uh, you know, I mean, if you, if you know a recording really well, uh, you can put it on shuffle and 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 like just give yourself a little surprise as to what's going to come next. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It all depends if um, I think like most people, sometimes I'll sit down with a cast album and I'll want to experience it as the whole show, uh, you know, as the narrative. Um, and in that case, you, one would listen to it straight through, obviously, and uh and one would also that's would be another case where one wouldn't want to 
have it on as background music. But, you know, if you have a party with a bunch of theater people and it's an album that everyone knows and you want to put it on, I think that's okay. <laughs> Ironically enough, <clears throat> um, looking at this number two brought back to mind Funny Girl again in a different context because um, in 1964, when I was crazy for Funny Girl, um, my oldest and dearest friend, still my oldest and dearest friend, John Harrison. Um, I said to him, listen, you got to borrow this album. you got to hear this. Um, this is so tremendous. And he um, borrowed it and he said, oh, yeah, those first three songs are great. Whoa. Um, I don't like the fourth one very much, though. And I thought, my God. He doesn't like Cornette, man. That song's terrific. Hmm. What? Uh, uh, he doesn't like, uh, uh, who taught a reverie? Uh, and what had happened was, being used to pop albums, he just put on the album on the second side. He didn't think about putting on the first side. So he didn't like Find Yourself a Man. Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's the song that didn't do it for him, which I fully understand. Um, and so yeah, I think because this seems to be an article for um, uh, of Cast Album 101, uh, a beginner's guide, uh, that is good advice. That said, um, for those of us who know these albums inside out, it's a lot of fun occasionally to put on and um, see what's coming next and be surprised. So, uh, so I think that's the difference there. Oh, and as far as don't read the liner notes, it's so funny because um, just yesterday I was looking at, I recently acquired a copy of the original cast recording of Cabaret on LP, which I, um, well, I had never had it on LP and I, have the CD, but I'm not sure that I, uh, I'm not sure if the original notes are recreated in, in the CD booklet. Um, uh, so anyway, I think I read the original notes by Charles Burr, I believe, for the first time in uh, Cabaret. And it was interesting to see, I, I looked ahead to see how he was going to deal with the, um, uh, with the denouement, you know, if he was going to, what, what he was going to do in the way of spoilers and he sort of does, but it's interesting the language he uses. And remember, this is 1966. Mm -hmm. uh, he writes um, that Sally, how does he phrase it? That Sally uh, has seen a doctor to help her not be pregnant. Ah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the word abortion is not there. Yeah, yeah. And I just thought that was so interesting. But I, um, uh, you know, I mean, uh, in this article, Green and Brantley are saying um, the way they phrase it is uh, it's better not to know what's going to happen, at least on first listening, what's going on or what's coming next. Write your own show in your head as you listen. Learn about the real one later. I mean, I guess you could do that. Uh, uh, can, can, can I interrupt there for a sure. second? Yeah. Uh, what practical advice is this of, of Brantley and Green? I mean, they see everything before the cast recording comes out. So they know what's coming. Yeah, you know? that's, but they're instructing <laughs> they're instructing newcomers here. I, I get that impression. So um, so I think that's perfectly fine. In terms of not reading the line notes, what comes to mind was when I saw Here's Love on Broadway, it's the mm -hmm. musical of Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street, a Meredith Wilson show. And there's this terrible song in the second act that has nothing to do with anything called She Had to Go Back. And what happens yeah. here is um, uh, Fred, um, waiting for Doris, uh, tells all his buddies who are in his apartment, I think they just finished playing poker, that she won't be up for 15 minutes, even though they live in the same building. And he explains that because she had to go back and get her gloves and she checked her face in the mirror. It's a very sexist song by today's standards. But the point is that after all that, he says, now she's about to 
to arrive. She's just about to push the button and it happens. And the, the, uh, you get a big orchestral flourish at the end of the song. Well, in the show, uh, he opens the door and it's a Girl Scout selling Girl Scout cookies. So after all that, it isn't even she. Okay. Um, so that was an enormous surprise to me. And then I later found out when I came home um, that um, it's in the liner notes. They actually give that away in the liner notes. And I never read the liner notes. And I guess what it really come, came down to for me was the fact that in the days when I was a teenager and didn't have a car yet or wasn't even driving yet, um, if... I took the bus. I would read the line of notes on the bus. You know, once I started driving, uh, then indeed, you know, I, I got the cast album in the car. I drove home and then I put it on immediately. So it's very funny how my cast album liner notes um, were dependent on taking the bus or driving home. <laughs> and, and not to mention, uh, Peter, do you have a count on how many liner notes you have written? Oh, I don't know, about 25 or 30, something like that, I would think. Uh, why don't you, uh, do you remember a handful of them off the top of your head? Uh, sure. Um, Pretty Bell, um, Redhead, Redhead twice, ironically enough, mm. um, because it was released on two different labels and they wanted a different, um, set of line of notes <laughs> for the reissues. So ironically enough, um, when RCA was doing the first one, um, they took out a part about Redhead being done in Mexico about La Pella Rosa as it was called. And um, I was able to put that back in the second time around. Wish You Were Here, I know I did. Draft the Cat. Um, yeah, uh, Fields of Ambrosia. Quite a few, actually. And, um, what, was and the, uh, what? What, were the, what was the golden age of liner notes? Oh, um, <laughs> uh, well, I guess, I guess the golden age of uh, musicals would strike me. You know, one of the ones that come to mind that really is uh, a terrific idea was on the back of the album of Superman, the It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman album, because it was done as the front page of the Daily Planet. And that was great fun um, to see uh, the way it was done, because uh, Clark Kent uh, was... Uh, assigned to shipping news because they apparently mm. didn't trust him too much to do anything of any real reporting. So, um, so that one's great fun. So I like those quite a bit and uh, yeah, sure. All things considered. Um, I do believe that, um, you know, the line of notes are going to be as good as the shows are, uh, or at least they can be. And so as a result, um, those, those years were really terrific years. And so, um, and Charles Burr, who, um, um, Michael already mentioned uh, really was very good at this, and I'm pretty sure he did the um, the um, Superman one. I think he did. Some of the uh, old old LPs I've gotten recently are from the 50s. The um, uh, Lehman Engel, some of the Lehman Engel ones, and on those really old ones, it's it's so interesting to read the notes because they're written in such a different style, uh, such a wonderful, like, more formal style than, than we would read today. And, and also, uh, of course, it's interesting to read the perspective of people writing way back then when, you know, they were rediscovering some of these scores by recording them in full for the first time. Uh, so that's, uh, that's, uh, you know, an album is more than the actual recording. It's, uh, it's so much of it is the, the packaging and the notes. They, they, they can make mm. a, a really big difference. And some of them are really, really classic by the, the Charles Burry mentioned, uh, um, who are the, <laughs> some of the other big names? Well, uh, certainly, um, I, I believe Ed Claypan did a couple um, mm. somewhere along the line. I want to instead uh, mention uh, one of the worst. <laughs> and um, 
I'm, I'm only going to give you the first line of it. Um, and here it is. Things happen so fast in ankles away. <laughs> Plot, music, and lyrics are so rapidly paced and so tightly integrated that a synopsis is difficult. I think that means book trouble, don't you? If a synopsis is difficult, good Lord. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> so uh, that's uh, the nadir. Ankles Away. Oh, ironically enough, I did the um, Lionel's for Ankles Away when it was released on CD. And this is something that uh, comes up in this article. I said it was a great party record because um, some of the songs are, you know, they're so bad. Well, so bad they're bad, or as opposed to so bad they're good. But um, but they really are uh, hilarious. Uh, that was one where they cut out a line too, because um, in "Ankles Away," there's a song called "Nothing Can Replace a Man," and I wrote, um, "Well, yeah, you can buy something in the drugstore for four dollars and ninety eight cents, and it <laughs> replaces a man." And they wouldn't put that in, so yes. um, that's yeah. where they drew the line. <laughs> um, but otherwise, um, I think uh, I remember David Spencer, um, who works with the BMI Workshop and um did the lyrics for weird romance and uh the um the apprenticeship of duddy kravitz saying the king and i record with darren mcgavin is a good party record because uh, he thinks his performance is so terrible no. so <laughs> it depends on the type of people you have at the party um i also always uh, when people are over play um roma nunfala stupidas da sera from rugantino um which i really recommend as something you know people always say i fell off my chair I've fallen off my chair twice in, in, in my life um, when something has struck me as funny. And that was one of the times it did <laughs> because that song is endless. They keep repeating the same lyrics over and over and over. They start with a, a male chorus, then a female chorus, then the male lead, and then the female lead, and then the male juvenile, and then the female juvenile. And, so, and they keep on going. And when I fell off my chair is when they finally did it a cappella. This song is so beautiful. They feel that it doesn't even need to have music <laughs> behind it. So, <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of things that are, uh, good for a party but you know i don't think there's really that many albums um because it's really only three songs in a row in ankles away that really make you um laugh like crazy but um i i don't think there are too many um that you can really play from stem to stern that will uh laugh. but there are certain judicious cuts that you can play from certain albums that um, certainly will get a lot of laughter from the people who are in attendance. Well, the, I, I didn't necessarily take it to mean that they wanted you to, to play albums you're going to laugh at. I just Oh, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not at all. Okay. <laughs> not at um, all. But I'm also reminded of, um, is it Terms of Endearment? Is it that movie? Um, what's the one where Deborah Winger uh, plays cast albums incessantly? Um, Jeff Daniels is in the movie too. He's her boyfriend. And, yeah, that's and, it. Yeah, is it? Yeah, and uh, she drives him crazy by playing um, the West Side Story soundtrack and Judy Garland at Carnegie Hall and singing along with it. And I think he says something like, "This isn't makeout music." <laughs> Clea Blackhurst also uh, admits when she does her Ethel Merman show that Ethel Merman is not makeout music, and I think she's right. George B. Dale, by the way, is another uh, great cast album notes writer that that I grew up on. Uh, he he and Charles Burr, I, I think. I believe they wrote exclusively for Columbia hmm. and they wrote a lot of uh, really interesting ones. So Peter with uh, point number six, don't play a cast recording as background music at a party. 
Uh, have you ever seen a fist fight break out over this? <laughs> no, I haven't seen that, but I certainly have heard arguments that have gotten heated. <laughs> um, <laughs> very much so, you know, because a lot of people say, oh, I think she's good. Um, uh, I, I, uh, the, the biggest, closest thing I ever saw to a fist fight, ironically enough, was not over a cast album, but a movie version of a musical, and that was On the Town, in which somebody said, oh, I like On the Town, the movie, because the people are nice, and, and boy, that started a brouhaha that <laughs> lasted for a good half hour and i really thought they were going to have to take it outside when i did community theater shows years and years ago we would have cast parties and sometimes i would bring foreign cast albums oh yeah that's fun the foreign cast album of the show we were doing you know the mexican my fair lady or the (laughs) uh, the uh whatever and uh i would play them and and people would sing along anyway and and i remember one (laughs) time the director came to me and said your attempt to bring a recording that people would not sing along to has failed. (laughs) (laughs) I tell you, if you get the Swedish cast album of Phantom of the Opera, uh, Prima Donna will give you a headache. I mean, it's, it's, it does not sing well in that language. Um, Uh, So uh, it's very heavy and very accented. And oh boy, that, that one's really a slog to get through. And by the way, I think Prima Donna is a beautiful song, but not on the Swedish cast album. (laughs) So, uh, (laughs) so Michael, you're, uh, you have uh, competing uh, cast albums for end of the rainbow, the, uh, the the West end London version versus Broadway because you love Tracy Bennett so much. Did they actually make cast albums of that? Yeah, this is an end of yeah. the rainbow cast album. Oh. It's hard to believe they do things like that. You know, I remember, in fact, when Moving Out came out, Michael um, wrote uh, somewhere. I don't. Uh, maybe it was Theater Mania, but anyway, he wrote that. Um, I don't see the point of this. Um, if you want Billy Joel's song, get Billy Joel albums. I mean, mm. why would you want um, this imitation Billy Joel to sing these Billy Joel songs? Do you remember that, Michael, that you said that? Yeah, and the answer I was given by someone is that people want uh, as close uh, a memory of the experience they had in the theater. Uh, and so in terms of the sequencing of the songs uh, and things like that, uh, there are so many. I mean, look at Mamma Mia. Look at the incredible success of that album. Uh, To me, it's like, what possible reason? Could you? I have Abba Gold. I don't have the Mamma Mia cast album. <laughs> well, I can see that with Mamma Mia because, I mean, after all, those songs are in the sequence and they. Right, exactly. That's what but, people are saying. Yeah. But Moving Out um, really wasn't. Um, you can't tell from um, the album what was going on because it was more of a dance piece more than anything else in the music. Good point. You know, so I think yeah. that's. A, so I, I support you heavily on the uh, Moving Out. <laughs> I, don't, I don't recall. Does, did, did Beatlemania have a cast album? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's ever been on CD, at least not officially. But um, yes, it did. Yeah, it lives in this house. Yeah, it's here. (laughs) So let me uh, transition for a second here. Uh, This week, uh, we received an email. Uh, from somewhere, and I'm going to read the email to you. It says, Hi, James. I just wanted to thank you all for being there each day. I listened on my way to and from work. I've always done this, but now it means so much more. After my shift as a nurse working on the front line, it is comforting to hear all of your voices. This week on Broadway and today on Broadway are always there when I'm sad, happy, excited, scared, anxious, Mm. fearful, proud, and tired. Even though I'm not there, I feel like I am on my couch chatting with friends. So thank you, James, Matt, Ashley, Peter, Michael, and Jenna for being familiar voices and not so 
not so familiar of a time. All my love, Tim Black. Isn't that fabulous? It was a really, really wonderful uh, email to receive, and um, it, it, it's one of the reasons why we do this. And uh, Well, another thing, too, is um, Lord knows what this uh, gentleman's life is like at this moment in time, um, you know, given that he's a nurse. So um, yeah, it's, it, this is not the um, golden age of being a nurse, God knows. Um, yeah. Or is it, depending on how you look at it. But, um, but nevertheless, uh, this is a guy who really works hard um, in, under normal circumstances. And under these, it must be really something. So we're lucky this morning because uh, Tim Black is joining us. Is uh, that right? Tim is with <laughs> us, yes. And he's got a question for uh, the two of you. What cast albums from the past 10 seasons have you loved? 10 seasons. So that brings us back to 2010. Yeah. 2010. Um, all right. I, I have to get in sequence here. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of these shows are still running, obviously. Yeah. Um, you know, so, uh, or at least they were still running. So, um you know, that's um, um, the the Anastasia album certainly is one that um, oh, yeah. I like quite a uh-huh. bit. Um, that um, that was one that I really enjoyed tremendously. Um, and of course, Dear Evan Hansen is, is one that uh, especially that uh, it's funny to use the term 11 o'clock number about that song about the boy sitting in the truck. while he doesn't know his life is falling apart because of his parents' divorce. Um is is one I think one of the all time great songs. So uh, and uh, certainly <laughs> listening to Hamilton, um, uh, despite the um, non rhymes that drive me crazy. But uh, for me, it's worth it. Uh, for you'll be back, frankly, um, which I really think is a, a tremendous song. Oh, the prom! I like the prom a lot oh, too. Yeah, yeah. That's um, I think I think the prom is a, a terrific score and a terrific show. So uh, so those ones that come to mind immediately. I'm sure there are others. Michael, Michael? yeah. Well, you know what? I'm going to go easy here and pick some very, very recent ones mm, that okay. I uh, have heard and really liked. One is the cast album of Anything Can Happen in the Theater, the musical world of Maury Yeston, uh, yeah. which was a, a <laughs> Maury Yeston review, uh, self-explanatory, that was done at the York, and that has... Uh, of excellent cast album that was just released, but also um, two Joe Iconis shows, uh, Be More Chill and Broadway Bounty Hunter. Uh, Broadway Bounty Hunter is just out with Annie Golden, and I was I've really been really enjoying listening to that. It's a lot of fun, and her voice is so great. And I I really like Joe's work overall. Be More Chill has been interesting to me. Uh, to compare the two recordings, the one that was from the Two River Theater uh, in Red Bank, New Jersey, which apparently started the whole phenomenon of the song, uh, the score, excuse me, uh, becoming a viral phenomenon, and uh, particularly the song Michael in the Bathroom, but really the whole score. And that kind of prompted the whole move to Off-Broadway and then Broadway, which unfortunately was not successful for probably very complicated reasons we can't get into but uh regardless it it spurred all of that and guys i gotta tell you sing street is so enjoyable oh, yeah. sing to street listen to. hysterical funny oh gosh oh it, i i'm really loving it e- even more than in the theater um so i think that's going to wind up being one of my most played uh, certainly among the recent cast albums 
Sing Street is terrific. And um, <clears throat> I remember when I, when we went to see it, um, my girlfriend Linda said, um, you know, I don't like this show, but I am looking forward to this Cal album like crazy. Um, I, I think it really is wonderful, wonderful music. The story doesn't interest me terribly much. I see where it's going. Uh, it, it, it seems very trite to me, but boy, when we get the CD and we go on a long distance trip, please bring it with us so that uh, we can listen over and over and over again. It really is very successful. And Sing Street, of course, um, was one that people got to know this week because um, on April 30th, there was a uh, concert that was uh, streamed. And for that matter, it's still available. It was supposed to be one night only, but it was so successful. It is now going till tomorrow. So um, if you want to hear the Sing Street album um, and, and see something, too, of the show, well, there you are. You're going to be able to do that. And um, the uh, young man who plays Connor, whose last name is O'Connor, um, makes a terrific uh, debut. And we look forward to him making his Broadway debut. Um, and, of course, soon the sooner the better. It's kind of sad to look to look at the album because it says original Broadway yeah, cast, yeah. and it would have been sure. as of a few weeks ago when it was scheduled mm. to open. Yeah. Oh, that brings up a good point about cast albums, too, of the Golden Age. They couldn't wait to get them out. So as a result, so many of them have songs that were dropped. <laughs> I mean, back to Here's Love, there's the song The Plastic Alligator. It's not on the album. Mm-hmm. Um, Superman, Everything's Easy When You Know How. It's not on the album. It was in the show, but they didn't uh, put it on the album. And I think it had to do with the fact that it was uh, sung by... Um, five people who were in the show and only had one number and they figured, look, we're not going to pay five people's salary because you get a, a your week's salary for doing the album. And, uh, or at least you did in those days. I don't know what the terms are now, but, um, you know, given the fact that today, um, whoever uh, is on a cast album that wins the Grammy gets a Grammy. Um, that's a recent thing. So, so as a result, it may be very different now, but back then you got a week's salary for doing the album. And so I think that's why we don't have everything's easy when you know how, which is not a great song anyway, but that's another story. (laughs) I have a a few more mainstream albums that are constantly in rotation on my, uh, on my iPhone, uh, alphabetically Beetlejuice, uh, the 2018 company cast recording from London, uh, Dear Evan Hansen, Hamilton, Honeymoon in Vegas, and Bridges in Madison County, yeah, because I'm such a big Jason Robert um, Brand yes. fan. Uh, so uh, it, it's uh, those are the ones that keep me going. But let's move forward into some other things. Actually, uh, uh, quickly as uh, as a quick story of life imitating art and art imitating life uh, <laughs> uh rob johnston is here in our chat room and he was he said that he was at the uh, party for the final weekend of rent at the life cafe and they had a cast recording on they had the cat the rent cast recording on and when levy bohem uh was about to come and uh on everyone went to the back and danced on the tables <laughs> so uh <laughs> life imitating art there all right, so let's uh, move forward into our next discussion, which is our favorite movie musicals, meaning the ones that were from Broadway uh, musicals, not mm-hmm. um, not ones made for the screen first, uh, which is like the producers, I'm assuming, the uh, producers to mm-hmm. Broadway and Broadway to the producers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Round trip that that <laughs> I one know made what you mean. there. You know? <laughs> so, Peter, why don't you tell us about your favorite movie musicals? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick one that's very controversial, um, and uh, because I think it's a good movie, 
It's not a good representation of the musical, but it is a good movie. If we had never known the original Broadway show, I think we'd like this movie more. But I want to go to bat for a funny thing happened on the way to the forum in terms of cinematic stuff. Now, it, it, of course, so much of Sondheim's score is cut. Isn't it ironic, though, that the only character that didn't lose any music whatsoever was Miele's Gloriosus? Hmm. Uh, his two songs, Bring Me My Bride and the Funeral Sequence, are both in the, in the but Zero Mostel lost free, um, for that matter, so did Hero. Um, uh, <laughs> Jack Guilford lost I'm Calm. Um, <laughs> uh, the Philia character lost That'll Show Him. I mean, everybody lost something, but not Melee's <laughs> Gloriosus. But I think it's great fun to watch the movie, and especially during Everybody Ought to Have a Maid, which thank God they did not drop. Um, there's a moment where <laughs> you see these four guys walking over this, uh, I'm going to say bridge. That's not the right word. I just don't know the technical term for the architecture of it all. But it's such an imaginative shot. So um, I do Aqueduct. think... Aqueduct. Thank you, um, which I should know from uh, Bells Are Ringing. Anyway, um, <laughs> the thing is that um, to uh, to see the imagination that uh, Richard Lester gave to this movie makes it a fun movie. So, um, And that is uh, one of the reasons I like it. And it's a, a reason I like the Boyfriend movie, which I'll admit is not a good movie, but the imagination behind it that Ken Russell gave it because he said, oh, let's not just do the boyfriend. Let's um, do something different. And what he did was uh, pretend that uh, a producer was sitting in this provincial uh, theater watching this low-level stock production of a musical and envisioning what it could be if he got his hands on it. And um, so I think the imagination behind that um, makes the boyfriend movie conceivably more interesting and i know that interesting is a word that really does have some negative um feelings attached to it but nevertheless um it is interesting to see that take on the movie so even though those two pictures are terribly flawed as musicals as movies i think they work in a certain context so i'm mentioning those first even though they are not my top favorite movies, um, movie, movie musicals, but I do want to give them mention because I doubt that anybody ever will. <laughs> Michael, how about you? Yeah, let me say first, I don't disagree about Forum, and I, uh, I largely agree. Uh, I've heard some people say that if they had only kept free in it, uh, that which would, was filmed, yeah, that would have been great. Uh, yeah, it was, wasn't it? Mm hmm. Yeah, because it, you know, we need an I want song for Pseudolus, and it's such a wonderful song. And it, I think it would have worked well in terms of filming. I, I, I suppose the footage must be lost, or we would have seen it by now. That's really yeah, too bad. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, you know, and also, as I, as I mentioned, Sondheim himself has expressed uh, that he's not completely happy with the way that score turned out because he feels that to a certain extent that it's a farce. And the uh, the songs uh, impede the forward momentum of the farce, which I suppose is, would be even truer for a movie uh, than a show because of the laws of the of the screen as opposed to the stage. And um, yeah, and and a lot of those songs um, that happen that were cut are are delightful in themselves, but not really um, maybe cinematic. Uh, so anyway, I, I I think that that there's a 
really good argument to be made that it is a good movie on its own terms. Um, the one I'd like to mention first, I, I think, is 1776, partly because uh, that we just lost this week, Peter H. Hunt, who uh, directed it both on stage, the original production, and the movie. And I am so glad that movie exists. It's an incredible achievement with almost the entire original cast. And, and uh, I think the people who weren't in it uh, on, in the original cast had done it elsewhere mm-hmm. uh, in almost every case, except Blythe Danner, mm-hmm. uh, who is so wonderful. I, I think she's just perfect in that part. Uh, but John Cullum had done it and uh, Donald Madden had done it. Uh, I, I think I have heard people say, that the movie is not cinematic enough. And I completely disagree. I think it's every bit as cinematic as it needed to be. Um, and if it had been more so, then they probably would have wrecked it. I, I always wonder if, um, if, well, people who say that, did they want battle footage during mm-hmm. Mama Looks Sharp? And, and did they want uh, slave auction footage during Molasses to Rum? I, you know, you could have gone that way, but I, I don't think that would have worked so i think that that is among the very best uh the one thing that i do feel bad about um in the 1776 movie is we don't get to know how close or far away they are as much as we do on stage because on stage there's that day-by-day calendar there's that tote board telling us yays nays and abstains and whenever we need to be reminded of how close or far away they are we can just look at those two items and see what I wish could have happened. And I don't know if technologically this is possible, given the fact that um, the DVD is letterboxed. So you have that black space at the bottom. Mm. I wish there were yays and nays and the date right there at all times. Um, I don't know if that's again possible, but it would have been great so that we could at all times know how far away or close they are because it's very, it's not the same with the movies. So, uh, and I know it couldn't be. Um, every now and then they do show you um, yeah. by taking down the um, the date and showing you the next one. But you don't really retain that. It's hard to keep in mind um, that the next scene you're seeing, and usually the scenes are very long, um, especially that famous scene that's a half hour long when there's no music whatsoever. Uh, so that would make 1776 a masterpiece for me. And um, uh, longtime listeners know that I've said that William Daniels on stage gave the greatest performance I've ever seen an actor given a musical. And we've talked about 50 years now since I've seen it. Uh, so um, that's pretty impressive. So I'm glad that uh, so much of the original cast did get to do it. Uh, um, it really was uh, terrific that they did, and it's a miracle that they did. I've always wanted to know the story behind why Betty Buckley was not in that movie. Hmm. All right, so Michael, 1776, uh, what's your next? Uh, how about hair? Okay. Very good choice. You yeah. know, it wasn't on my list, but that's a very good choice. Good for you. Yep. <laughs> yeah, maybe not perfect. Uh, some of it's a little sloppy, um, and there are some cuts that I wish uh, had been retained, like Frank Mills uh, and a few other, a few other songs, and also sections of some songs. Um, part of Donna is cut. Uh, and there are a few other things like that. But I think that, you know, as we've many, many, many times discussed, Michael Weller's 
screenplay that mm. he wrote around the score mm. is uh, a vast improvement over the, over the show script. And I think that uh, Milos Forman overall did a wonderful job in terms of con- reconceiving the piece for the screen. I love the way it starts with um, uh, with Claude Hooper Bukowski leaving mm-hmm. his small town and getting mm-hmm. on a bus mm-hmm. and then arriving in New York in in the middle of the 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 counterculture and the Vietnam protests and everything that was going on in, in the mid 60s uh, and I think the score is very well done uh, very well done for the screen supervised by Galt McDermott himself how often does that happen not too often uh, so I think that's a tremendous plus and I just think it's beautifully done uh, Annie Golden who I just mentioned <laughs> is great in it and Treat Williams and John Savage and uh, Beverly D'Angelo is very Beverly good too which, when she gets a, a look at Treat Williams uh, breaking into her um, parents party uh, this hoity-toity um, Short Hills New Jersey type of party um, but the scene at the end where um the um i think it's wolf is that his name the black kid um who um is Hud. is that who it is yeah okay uh, who's impregnated the the white girl and suddenly his old girlfriend shows up with their child and suddenly you know she realizes this could happen to her too that this guy is not who she thought he was she didn't know anything about this and what's so sad is as mad as this spurned girlfriend is she would take him back in a second you can really tell that too so there's such power in that scene such power so it really is good for you michael i i have to admit i forgot about that and i'm glad you reminded me maybe well, we, can't we can't get them we can't get them yeah all right so uh peter what's next up for you well, mentioning funny thing, when I first saw it, I, I, I liked it a lot. The second time I saw it, I had a wonderful experience because uh, the Cherie Theater in Boston was showing a sneak preview of how to succeed in business without really trying. The irony is just before um, I went to see the movie, I had a terrible fight with a friend and um, I was in such an awful mood. I thought the friendship was over and all that kind of business. By the way, it's not. We're still friends even to this day. But Anyway, I really thought it was the end of everything. And I went in and for four hours had the most wonderful time and forgot my troubles completely watching the uh, funny thing movie for the second time and the sneak preview of how to succeed, which at that point had both Coffee Break and Paris Original in it. I did see those scenes. Uh, I remember them vividly. I think it's a terrific movie. I don't like the um, art direction and set decoration nearly as much as I did on the uh, in the Broadway production, which I really didn't see. I saw the tour, but it was replicated. Um, but anyway, um, I think it's a wonderfully great movie. And um, certainly uh, hearing virtually all of the um, Frank Lesser score, that uh, the songs that really count are, are really quite good. And considering the fact that I consider Brotherhood of Man the greatest 11 o'clock number of all time, um, it, it really was wonderful to see that too. So uh, so I've, I've always loved How to Succeed, but I, I do think the movie is, is quite terrific as well. You actually saw oh, Coffee, absolutely. Coffee absolutely. Break? Absolutely. I remember it vividly. Again, sneak preview. So um, obviously when the show, uh, when the movie finally made the theaters, it was gone. But yes, indeed. Wow. I remember it perfectly, um, especially Paris original, even more than Coffee Break, because Coffee Break was pretty much replicated from the, um, the original staging. But 
but Paris original was very different. And I remember it was, I'm, I'm going to use a, a, a bad example here, but anyway, think of Avita with the bridge where she sings, um, don't cry for me, Argentina. Paris original had a lot of people on a, a, a bridge up, um, up above and, um, they were all coming in. So, so yes, yes, indeed. So oh, I had never heard that that one was even in it. That's news to me. On, I did not know that Paris on March fifth, nineteen sixty seven. It was <laughs> okay. I, well, I don't doubt you. <laughs> okay, uh, Michael. Uh, what else? Well, we should because uh, we, we don't want to mention uh, we don't want to miss them. Uh, we, we should just mention the obvious choices: West Side Story. I agree. The sound, the sound yep, of music. I agree entirely. Um, the Music Man. I mm-hmm. think these are all uncontroversial choices. I, I I don't think you'd get much argument from anyone on those. Um, the Oklahoma movie I've always thought is a magnificent achievement. Uh, Maybe not universally as beloved as some of the others, but I think it's great. The King and I, except for the cuts. But mm. other than that, it's just stupendous. Um, Cabaret would be another Cabaret example of a, list. Uh, yeah. another example of very, very, very different from the show. But as somebody recently wrote, both the show and the movie are just great. They're just two you different bet. animals. You bet. Two different yeah, animals. Absolutely. Um, Oliver was a huge hit in its day and deservedly so, I think. Uh, and then we, we should definitely credit Chicago uh, for, first of all, being a, a very good movie in itself, except my, my one major problem with that, as I've said many times, is I wish the editing was less frenetic in some places. But, uh, but really well done by Rob Marshall and look what it led to. The mm-hmm. one movie uh, really, I think, le- leading to a complete resurgence in movie musicals. Um, uh, I always cite Little Shop as a, as a movie that was made at a time when they were during that fallow period sure. where they had really yeah. almost stopped making movie musicals. But it was so good and it kind of cle- kept the flame alive uh, until uh, Chicago came along and, and spurred things, as I just said. And... Um, and another movie that that doesn't often get mentioned is Hedvig and the Angry Inch, which is a very terrific, mm-hmm. terrific adaptation of that show. Sure, uh, it could have been awful, I'm sure. Well, you know that's true in any yeah, case. Know, yeah, but but it but very 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 well done. I want to go to bat too for bells are ringing. And, um, I, I think it's a, a wonderful picture. And what's so interesting to me, <laughs> there's that word again, um, <laughs> is that, um, Dean Martin was notorious for saying, I am doing one take and one take only. And that's all there is to it. This mm. is it. Okay. You understand this is it. This is all we're doing. And yeah. I think he's really magnificent in the picture. And especially at the end, which always gets me to have tears in my eyes when he says to her, you've got a lot of love to give, give it to me. I need it. He does it so beautifully. And, um, I, I, I just love it so much. And of course, seeing Judy holiday, uh, in the one musical that she filmed, um, is, is just such a treat too, because I do believe that, um, 
if we go to shows that have the greatest first number for a character and last number for a character, Bells Are Ringing is right up there with It's a Perfect Relationship and I'm Going Back, which I think um, is uh, just uh, terrific. Um, right up there with um, Some People in Rose's Turn and Come to Me and Why Do the Wrong People Travel from uh, Sail Away. Uh, those are the three, I think, which really have the best opening and closing numbers for uh, for actresses. And um, But Bells Are Ringing is, is really quite nice. And that's why I like it, because she's she's such a nice person that she really goes the extra step to do um, nice things for people. She cares about the people that she's talking to on that switchboard, and uh, she really wants them to have better lives. And so this is a very special person. And so I, I love watching the movie for that reason. I also like the Damn Yankees movie for the reason that Michael mentioned earlier about 1776. It's almost the uh, original mm-hmm. cast. And um, granted, Tab Hunter uh, replaced... Um, um, Stephen Douglas. And I, I asked Gwen Verdon about this and she had nothing but the best things to say about Tab Hunter. She thought he was terrific. She thought he worked hard and all that. So even if you know, notice in the two lost souls number that suddenly he walks off, you know, well, dances off, but uh, they don't want him in the number because <laughs> he, he really doesn't have that talent. And Lord knows that he doesn't have the voice when he has to sing. Um, and now your Joe has to go in that goodbye girl number and notice that his two ballads were cut. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yes, they wanted Tab Hunter because he was hot at the time and um, he would sell the movie because who knew who Glenn Verdon was in Hollywood because um, she'd only had tiny parts in movies up till then. So as a result, um, I think it's really great to see the original cast. It's fun to see Gene Stapleton um, <laughs> uh, 14 years before she knew she'd be a, a sensation that everybody in the country would know her name because of all in the family. But uh, here uh, she is playing uh, the minor roles that she always had in musicals. You know, it's funny if you, if you say to people on the Funny Girl cast album, Who's the f- most famous person that you hear first um, on the album? Well, you, you think it's Streisand? No, it's Fanny. You know, and uh, if a girl isn't pretty, and it's Jean Stapleton who starts that off. So um, she was a supporting player, but um, it's fun to see her there, and it's so wonderful too. At one point, um, there's going to be the talent show to raise money um, for Joe Hardy's um, defense. And Bob Fosse is in the movie. And at one point, uh, Gwen Verdon walks by and um, and he says, hey, there she is. <laughs> and it's so nice to know that um, they would have such an important relationship that even with its ups and downs and downs and downs and ups, that um, they never officially divorced, that they um, that they didn't want to take that step. And really, that really says something um, that uh, about uh, a type of true love that we don't usually hear about. The funny thing about the ballads being cut from Damn Yankees, uh, Tab Hunter's, the ones he would have sung, is that he had already had a couple of hits, yep. hit recordings with yep. ballady type songs. And I'm sure he would have sung them better than uh, that section you mentioned uh you know and and though your joe has to go it didn't have that kind of a voice no Um, so i think he could have done a really nice job with with croony 
uh, versions of those ballads. Uh, he wouldn't have sung them like Stephen Douglas on the cast album, but uh, "Near to You" and uh, "A Woman Doesn't A Man Doesn't, a man doesn't, a man doesn't know. know." Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah ironically enough, um, that you mentioned that. Um, yes, he did have a career um, as a singer for Dot Records, and his recording of "Young Love," a big pop hit at the time, was uh, was certainly uh, one that made the charts. But um, also in the movie, who's really quite wonderful. Hmm. Shannon Bolan, yes, uh, who who plays his um, Joe Boyd's wife, and she is so tender with him. It's it's really quite marvelous to see uh, her in the movie as well. She lived a nice long time. She lived yes. close to being a hundred, and um, and she was so terrific every step of the way. I I got to talk to her many times late in her life, and she was just terrific. So so seeing her in her prime is, is really something that I enjoyed immeasurably. Um, I agree, Michael, you know, I mean, sound of music takes a lot of heat from a lot of people for a lot of different reasons, but I think it's a terrific movie. And I think it really is very well directed, especially when Maria gives up and goes back to the convent. And the moment she makes up her mind that she's um, not going to have anything to do with this guy and uh, mother superior encourages to do so. She comes back, she finds out the guy's engaged. I mean, whoa. I mean, Oh, yes, I know that happens in the stage show as well. But nevertheless, that's such a potent thing and so beautifully mm. directed in the movie. And um, frankly, I think the song Something Good is really a nice song, and I prefer it immeasurably to An Ordinary Couple. I do miss How Can Love Survive and No Way to Stop It. Yes, I do. Um, I love those songs terrifically. And How Can Love Survive was certainly a song that I loved at first here. Um, when I first heard the cast album Sound of Music long before I saw the stage show, that was the song that really was a standout to me. So uh, under those circumstances, I did miss it. And I do like that it shows up at least as background music at a party. But um, but Sound of Music is a damn good movie, um, even with uh, the nuns stealing the spark plugs from the car so they won't go at the end. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I think it's a terrific picture, and um, I give it the respect that it deserves. West Side Story, too. But one thing I want to say about one of the reasons I don't like movie musicals nearly as much as stage musicals can be found in West Side Story, because after they do America, suddenly the, there's no music at all, and everybody starts laughing, as if to say, weren't we silly to be doing that? And that happens in movie musicals a lot, that after people sing, especially production numbers, that they start laughing because they don't know what else to do. In, in stage shows, of course, you have the applause to cover that, and people just fade back into uh, dialogue, right. and, the, and, the, and the applause covers that. But in a movie, you don't have that, so um, it's, it's a little tough. And ironically enough, what's really effective in the West Side Story movie, which I think should have happened at the end of America, is the fact that after um, One Hand, One Heart, you know, this tender scene, boom, there's an immediate cut to the quintet an immediate cut to the quintet. And after that tender scene, you get this jarring thing about how we're going to have this rumble tonight. Um, and one of Sondheim's best lyrics when he rhymes punkle with uncle. Um, <laughs> but, um, but it really is something to see that quick cut from uh, one hand, one heart to um, quintet. And I think it should have happened at the end of America. Just go to the next scene. Don't have them laugh. Um, be as if to say, weren't we silly? So, um, and, um, but that happens in a lot of movie musicals. They, they also do it. In, they also do it at the end of, I feel pretty, but arguably it's more appropriate there because they are just being silly and mm -hmm, having fun. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, uh, an interesting uh, little 
point that I always thought in the movie of Bells Are Ringing that you mentioned, uh, this is very creative. It starts with footage of New York City, mm-hmm. but it starts with footage with New York City under construction. Yeah. Or under reconstruction. Yeah. Lots of movies have begun with, with shot, you know, skyline shots and shots of landmarks of, of New York City, uh, including um, How to Succeed, although that was a later movie. Uh, but I think that it was very creative on Vincent Minnelli's part to have, just to make it a little different, to show the city under construction. And, you know, one could argue that it's, uh, a comment on Ella, the the, the main character, because she's kind of under construction as well. And, yeah. You know, kind of getting like you know, figuring out who she is and what she has to give to people and how she can express her love. So I th- I always thought that was a sweet, really creative little touch. Well, speaking of that, Michael Potantier gets a great deal of credit for noticing the beginning of West Side Story, <laughs> where they have the overhead shots that you can actually see the wreckage of the. Um, Roxy, the Roxy Theater, the Roxy, um, uh, the, 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 um, the roof is off and you see seats. Um, you have to look carefully, but it's there, you know, so um, and that's, of course, such a dramatic opening seeing uh, New York uh, from that vantage point, um, including Yankee Stadium and a, a number of other places as well. It really is very exciting to see that before you zoom into the uh, playground where there isn't much playing going on. So, uh, yeah, I do think that's, uh, that's pretty terrific. So um, let me uh, ask uh, a few questions here. Mm-hmm. So uh, in our chat room, Nikki Yuvin asked, uh, what did you think of the original Annie movie that she grew up with it? And when she did the show as a kid, she was surprised at the differences. I don't like any of the Annie movies. Um, and uh, it's, it's ironic. I have to say any and not both. Um, there have been uh, so many permutations of it. Um, frankly, I've never even watched the entire first Annie movie. By the time Ann Reinking says we've got Annie, um, it's just been too sweet and saccharine for me. And, um, it has to end, you know, so many times movies overdo it with, I mean, there are so many kids in that orphanage, just as there are too many people, even though it's historically accurate that there were more people in 1776 than we see in the stage show. But my God, that place is so filled with, um, with people. It's just too much to assimilate and having all those orphans do that number, I think is really a, a mistake. So, um, I do like, um, the um, song, um, um, uh, gee, I can't remember its name, but the one that Daddy Warbucks and Carol Burnett sing together. Fine. Um, yeah, I knew it began with an S. I was, all I could think of was Smile. Um, I do think that's a good song, but I'm not sure I've even seen it. I, I may just know it from the soundtrack. Um, oh, by the way, speaking of soundtrack, you know, the thing is, in this article, um, which essentially, um, as I said, seems to be for beginners, they don't really explain what a soundtrack is, mm. you know, and I think that was an enormous mistake. They just say, don't use it. But why? Well, uh, again, when I was about 16 years old and going into Farrington's record store in Arlington, Massachusetts, and there I am with two albums in my hand, both the King and I, one has a picture of the, both of them have the picture of the same guy playing the, apparently the king, but who's the <laughs> I? I mean, the two different women, I don't get it. One says original cast, one says soundtrack. Oh, wait a minute. This is the movie because movies have a track of sound. Mm. And that's where the term comes from. And, you know, um, my friend Jay Clark, 
um, recently went to bat um, for uh, making sure that people use the correct term because Patty Murin, um, the woman who was in Frozen uh, for a while there, um, went on Twitter or somewhere and said, oh, please, you know, there's nothing wrong with calling these things soundtracks. And um, he said, no, there is. You know, and somebody answered him and said, oh, it's so elitist. Uh, when you call something a soundtrack um, only for the movie and the original cast. It's not elitist. There's nothing wrong with saying the right thing. We, is this what it comes down to? If you use the right term, you're elitist. What you have to be, is, is that snobbish to use the right term? Is that what that is? Snobbish? Elitist? Isn't it just being correct? What's wrong with being correct? What's wrong with being right? What's wrong with using the right word under the circumstances? Robert Armin had a good point yesterday on Facebook when he said, well, if you use the term interchangeably and you say you love the soundtrack of The Music Man because uh, you love Shirley Jones, and then you start talking about the original cast album of The Music Man, but you don't make the distinction, well, then indeed you're implying that Shirley Jones is on the other album. I mean, so soundtrack really does indicate different recordings it, uh, from an original cast album because rarely are the same people in it. So as a result, you know, to talk about performances, you really have to be specific with soundtrack and original cast album. So all things considered, I don't know why this is something people fight for to think that the two terms should be interchangeable. There's nothing wrong with one thing being one thing and another thing being another. I'm a little confused. Are there more than two film versions of Annie? Oh, yeah. There's a TV version. Um, yeah. That's, yeah. There was also a, another movie that came out um, uh, that... Uh, oh, the, the, the one with... Um, uh, 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 yeah. <laughs> I don't know who that... Yeah, a, a, a girl who had a tremendously long last name um, uh, did a, another version as well. So um, obviously and, I didn't uh, see it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I have to say on its own terms, it's not a bad movie. It's just, it's not a movie of Annie and uh, per se. So um, it's, it's not unwatchable. I mean, if you just forget that there's such a thing as Annie and just concentrate on what's happening there, it's a good movie on its own terms. But um, I remember Martin Charnin um, once uh, doing a, a one-person show. Uh, he, of course, conceived Annie. He wrote the lyrics for it and directed the original production quite well, by the way, uh, for those who think Mike Nichols did it. I saw it at good speed. It was, he did it. Anyway, so Martin Charnin does this one-person show, and he's talking about Annie, and he says, and I hear they even made a movie of it, which certainly <laughs> lets you know that he didn't like the picture as it turned out. So, uh, so yeah. Yeah. And then there were even, Annie even led to a TV movie sequel of some sort. And wasn't there even a Christmas movie? I mean, it really, um, it really influenced a lot of things. No question. Well, I think that John, oh, I'm sorry. I think the John Huston one is, is pretty much a disaster. I, Mm. I, I I like the, uh, the TV movie overall. That's Rob Marshall, right? Yeah, well, um, you know, I, I, I had a friend uh, who worked on it and he told me about it as it was being made. And he said, and so Miss Hannigan shows up um, at the end of the picture um, trying to pretend that she's Annie's um, mother. And I said, oh, that sounds bad. And he says, no, 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 no. You won't recognize Kathy Bates um, in that role. Oh, yes, I did. And I don't think she would have fooled Annie at all. I think she would have said, this is Miss Hannigan. We talked about this recently about um, Mrs. Doubtfire and the same type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, really, um, that's what I don't like about the uh, – but I do agree, aside from that, that the TV movie of Annie is better than the John Huston one. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. Mm. So, uh, Peter, when you were talking about Bells Are Ringing, you mentioned uh, Dean Martin and his one take want. Um, his brethren, Frank Sinatra, also yeah, had, same a one, thing. had a one take want, uh, yeah. which led to a story about Carousel. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Carousel movie was supposed to star Frank Sinatra as Billy Bigelow. Uh, but this was right around the time the CinemaScope was, uh, was coming in, and um, a lot of theaters weren't equipped for that. So as a result, they were going to have to film the movie tw- uh, twice, in essence. Uh, they would do a scene and film it uh, for regular theaters that weren't equipped for CinemaScope, and then they would uh, repeat the scene again uh, for, in CinemaScope. So there would actually be two separate versions, and uh, that's where Frank Sinatra drew the line. He felt that he was making two different movies i don't know i i don't quite see frank sinatra as billy bigelow either. No. billy no. bigelow needs size and gordon mcrae really provided that and um frank sinatra is just too skinny and not uh, powerful enough he had the temperament for billy bigelow i'll grant you um but uh, somehow that um, role needs size and of course there are pictures of him with a little scarf around his neck um, and uh, all that and I think he looks ridiculous frankly um, so I'm yes. very glad that it didn't happen Carousel the movie takes a lot of heat um, I'll grant you uh, a lot of people don't like it very much and notice we haven't mentioned it until now but um, I think it's, I think it's fine um, it, it's not a, a, a great achievement, but I don't think it's a bad movie. Um, but I will admit I'm in the minority about that. Yeah, I'm going to strongly disagree on that one. Yeah, but, fine. But on that note, um, uh, thank you for saying that because I wanted to mention I had seen years ago Hugh Jackman uh, as Billy Bigelow in a concert version of Carousel at Carnegie Hall with Audra McDonald. And I uh, don't know what led me to look for it, but I, I looked on YouTube the other day and there are two extensive clips of him uh, in, uh, it's, I, I guess, most of his part of If I Loved You and then all of the soliloquy. And mm. I tell you, it is even better than I remembered it. I remember him being very good in it. Overall, uh, his singing in these clips that I sent to James uh, to include in the in the show notes, it's really excellent. And that is one of the big what ifs, because he was um, uh, several years ago, he really wanted to make a remake, a, a film remake of Carousel. And I think it was desperately needed and he would have been just perfect. Now, unfortunately he's a little too old for it. So I am, uh, I am sorry that that didn't happen. There are so many might've been some oh, yeah. in, in the world, but, oh, yeah. but to me, I think that's, that's, that's really one of the big ones because that show is a masterpiece uh, of Rogers and Hammerstein and it deserves a superb movie of it. The, the only, uh, the best video incarnation of it, that I know of. And the only really good one is um, the, uh, the concert that was televised with Kelly O'Hara and Nathan Gunn and Jesse Mueller, which I don't think that's commercially available, but it was, uh, you know, it was PBS. And so uh, probably hopefully a lot of people made good quality recordings for them. Uh, And just quickly uh, what, Peter said about the film of Carousel and how they they originally thought that they needed to film it twice uh, because they didn't know uh, how to reduce the uh, the, the widescreen uh, to 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 mm-hmm. uh, show. Anyway, um, 
but then they realize that they that they didn't have to do that mm. in that case. But there are three movies that I know, three movie musicals mm-hmm. that exist mm. in three com- in two completely different versions each. Except this for is that, interesting. This is yeah. interesting because I only know one, so this is going to be very educational for me. The only one I know is Seven Brides. Is that was the one you're going to mention? Oh yeah, but uh, no, you know at least another one is Oklahoma. Oh right, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is Brigadoon. No, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and so in all three cases, the recordings of the songs and the music are the same, but the 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 all of the dialogue and all of the acting and all of the, everything is two completely different movies, and um, uh, so it's fascinating to to look at both of them. Uh, well, Brigadoon um, brings us to Learner and Lowe, and it's amazing we haven't mentioned My Fair Lady yet. A, a lot of people yeah. don't like the My Fair Lady movies. They think it's a little stodgy. Mm. I think it's terrific. Uh, and a lot of people, of course, resent it because Audrey Hepburn's in there. And when it's time for her to sing The Rain in Spain, that voice doesn't sound anything like the voice we've been hearing Audrey Hepburn speak. So, um, so uh, yeah, but I think it's a very fine movie, and um, I, I enjoy watching it uh, quite a bit. A lot of people feel that Rex Harrison is on automatic pilot. I don't see that oh no no yeah I I, yeah i i think he's very good um um but there is a lot of criticism that it seems to be a business as usual type film that um it was filmed without any particular imagination the type of thing you were talking about earlier um uh about um the cinematic quality of it that it doesn't have that cinematic quality and i will admit that's what makes cabaret so exciting um you know at the beginning i remember i still remember seeing cabaret in 1972 uh and i was so impressed during vilcomen when um you saw a waiter carrying a, a a tray with i think a bottle of champagne on it passing right in front of everybody and i thought this is great it isn't just a flat shot right of, um you know the the, the will come and i mean it really is trying to get you in the mood of the nightclub and i thought that was the, the hustle and bustle of a nightclub and i thought that was really great and up until that time that just didn't happen you know that most productions was simply shot you know the camera was positioned and indeed there was the production number and that was that and a lesser director certainly would have um done it that way and for that matter there are a lot of very very terrific um imaginative cinematic things in the sweet charity movie um Mm -hmm. very imaginative um in in terms especially rhythm of life Uh, um sammy davis comes out from under the car and one of those things that you uh roll under the car when you have to fix something at the bottom of it and and he pops up out of nowhere at one point in that number uh very cinematic and it really is uh and the stop action stuff that was kind of new at that time i'll grant you was in the movie uh, to serve with love but um but still uh it it has a lot of touches that really indicate that this bob fossey one of these days is going to make a great movie musical and it was three years later when he did good for you on that cabaret observation i just was watching vilcomen the other day and there is a, a specific moment at that you mentioned right before the climax of the number you know they go and then it goes to a long shot and right before they go into vilcomen a waiter like <laughs> runs across the street with a screen with a with a tray and it makes it so exciting because yep. you really feel like you are actually there 
And it's a little thing, but it makes all the difference. And uh, another thing, even though this doesn't involve particular camera work, I love the fact that when he introduces people, you know, there's Sally Bowles is just one of the people he's introducing. You know, mm. she's not the star. She's just and right. you get you you immediately know that she ain't the star, that she's just one of the people who entertain at the Kit Kat Club. Yes. And, uh, and that's a terrific thing, too. So, uh, oh, yeah. Um, I remember, too, vividly when I was saying to myself, I was watching this picture for the first time, saying, oh, I'm getting it. All the numbers are diegetic. They're simply going to be numbers that are performed on stage. And then um, after she um, has her first encounter with Cliff, um, meaning um, when they when they sleep together, suddenly she's singing maybe this time. And I'm thinking, oh, no, I was wrong. They are going to do book numbers because I assumed that she was singing after uh, waking up from um, being with him. And then you see she's in the cabaret uh, practicing the song right so i mean i and i thought oh good good yeah they're still they're still doing it and that's the wonderful thing about the cabaret movie aside from tomorrow belongs to me which could happen as um an anthem that people would start singing um outside it it, it, every uh it's a realistic movie. <laughs> mm. Movies aren't musical movies aren't realistic. People, you know, uh, millions of people always say I hate when they sing, um, but here they sing when they should be singing. So, uh, so that's one of the wonders of the cabaret movie as well. All right, so let's uh, move on to two other quick things before we wrap up for today. Um, uh, uh, was it Monday? On Monday, I've lost track of time again. On Haven't Monday, we all, they had you know. the uh, Sondheim 90th from Broadway.com. Did uh, you guys get to watch it? Oh, yes. sure. Yeah. Oh, terrific presentation. Just really wonderful. quite wonderful. I thoroughly agree. Yeah. Um, and um, to me, uh, one of the great things was uh, the I'm Still Here uh, with mm, so many yeah. people. Mm-hmm. I, I was hoping that would happen because, of course, um, in these t- troubled times, uh, I'm still here has to be an anthem for all of us. So, um, I have to admit that, um, I did think if Elaine Stritch were alive today, what would she think of Christine Baranski, Audrey McDonald and Meryl Streep's break on the ladies who <laughs> lunch? I mean, those of us who were firsthand witnesses to Stritch's cynical nature can hear her saying in her droning voice, sure. It took three of them to do what I did alone, you know, so <laughs> I can just hear her. Christine Baranski was on uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me this week, and she talked about uh, filming the um, the ladies who lunch with uh, with Audra. <laughs> a very, very funny listen. If you're uh, interested in that, go to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me and uh, take a listen to that. Michael, what about the uh, Sondheim 90th? What were some of your favorite parts? Well, I bravo to Raul Esparza and Mary yeah. Mitchell Campbell mm-hmm. for putting it together. What and Paul Wontorek. Yeah, Paul. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I was just about to say they, they had some unfortunate um, mm-hmm. tech problems at the beginning. Uh, I think I think it sounds like it just really had to do with um, volume. Uh, uh, and uh, they were uh, actually uh, Raul and Paul did a, a Q&A over at New York Magazine, and uh, they talked a little bit about the the issues. They had a um, they had an afternoon uh, rehearsal. 
and they understood what some of the issues were, and then they were all having some sort of sound issues. So he tried to. Uh, um, uh, there was four sections that were pre-recorded, and they were having lagging issues uh, streaming oh. the, the pre-recordings uh, from their systems. So they were trying to upload them, and the uploads were getting hung up. And so that was part of the thing. They wanted to finish the uploads before they started the show, so that right. they could stream them. And uh, but. Uh, they, they talked about <laughs> a- actor's nightmare type of uh, sweats during the uh, show to be stuck on a uh, on a frozen screen with a hundred thousand people watching. But uh, surely oh, it was a uh, hundred thousand people watching and talking about how much people miss live theater. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also have to credit Linda Lavin's redo of the song she debuted more than fifty four years ago, <laughs> "The Boy from from the Mad Show." Um, Levin then and now had to use spectacular breath control to deliver the names of two cities that have umpteen syllables in them. And how I mean, here she is 54 years later. She's no kid anymore. And here she is delivering these. <laughs> she had to take this intake of breath before coming out. And, you know, it's, it's funny because this is a song that, of course, we didn't know in 1966, those of us who were around, that Sondheim had written it because I uh, used the pseudonym of Esteban Rio Nido, which I checked on Wikipedia. That translates from the German to the Spanish to Stephen River Nest. You, you figure it out. <laughs> I can't. It makes no sense to me. But anyway, but that to me was one of the great wonders of this show. I mean, there were a lot of wonders, too. But um, but and, and the fact that Sutton Foster and Emily Griffin did They Won't Be Trumpets was really something to me, too, because I was reminded of the fact it's such a miracle. Um, you know, anyone can whistle as a show about miracles. However, um, it is a miracle that that cast album got recorded. Yes. But more of a miracle is that Goddard Lieberson would take the time to record. There won't be trumpets when the song had been cut from the show. Yeah. I mean, to do a, 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 an album of a show that ran nine performances is a miracle in itself, but to record a song that, you know, was cut from the show. When does that ever happen? Uh, certainly that must've been the first time in cast album history that that happened. And, and then not to put it on the album, um, is it, uh, we didn't hear that until the CD was released right. uh, sometime in the 80s and 90s, whenever it was. Um, it, it's just amazing. And it fits so beautifully on the album because, of course, it's the original orchestration. I mean, there, there, there are so many times you, you hear songs that were added to cast albums or done at different recording sessions. You can really tell the difference. Um, you listen to the Jamaica album and it, it takes you only a few seconds in coconut suite to realize it's a completely different recording session. And it's, it is, I mean, it's even uh, admitted on the liner notes, but, um, but here you get the original thing and it fits so beautifully in. And I don't think that if that hadn't um, happened, that we, we might not have heard Sutton Foster and Emily Griffin do, they won't be trumpets um, because I think it would have just been too obscure a song. I'm glad. I'm sorry that Raul didn't get to do his opening uh, introduction as planned live, but I'm very glad that they worked things out uh, for him to do I Remember Sky. I'm not sure if that was pre-recorded anyway, but that was a beautiful rendition. Uh, there were so many highlights. Um, uh, it, it, I thought It Takes Two <laughs> with uh, uh, Ben Platt and Beanie Feldstein was was wonderful, and it was great to see Chip Zion. I mean, we could go on and on. As mm. far as um, the ladies who lunch, I think aside from the quality, uh, you know, the incredible talent of those three 
women they wound up getting, I, I think it was smart just to decide to have it done by three people rather than one uh, in order to um, further avoid any uh, comparison to, I, I, I think arguably maybe that's the most famous interpretation of any Sondheim song by one person, uh, The Ladies Who Lunch by Elaine Stritch. And uh, not the least of which because of the um, uh, TV um, sure. uh, the, uh, um, <laughs> the documentary. Album. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Um, not the least of which because of that. So sure. I, I think that's a very good point, Michael. Um, I agree that uh, that that is probably the most definitive one. And um, as someone who was at the first performance of Company, I, I, I could take you exactly to where Elaine Stritch was on the stage when she sang that song. It was just so impressive to me. Mm. So, um, so yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Other news this week, uh, quickly before we run, is that uh, Lincoln Center and Public Theater just impresario Bernie Gersten passed away at the age of 97. I, I can't imagine what theater would look like if Bernie Gersten hadn't decided to go into just it. a towering, a towering figure in, in both in both of those institutions. And he even worked with Joe Papp during the four years that he was also head of Lincoln Center Theater. Mm. Uh, so, so it's, it's very neat the way that all fits together. What's really interesting to me is that, uh, you look at this career and, um, he started off, um, <laughs> as a, as a performer, he was in the ensemble of a production of Hamlet in 1945, but, um, he soon segued into stage management and, um, even was a, a PSM on, um, a, uh, a city center revival of uh, guys and dolls and did a lot of stuff uh, at city center until um, he really started getting uh, Broadway jobs. But what I find so interesting is that uh, he was the general stage manager. That's the term that was used for do re mi in 1960 produced by David Merrick. And then was the uh, stage manager for Arturo Ui produced by David Merrick in 1963. And then you don't see a credit for six years. What happened during those six years? Well, what's, <laughs> I guess he wasn't working for David Merrick. And the question becomes, <laughs> did David Merrick drive him so crazy that he said, uh, I'm going to go work on a shoe store? I mean, one has to wonder about that. But thank God he did find his home with um, the um, the Pap uh, Theater, the um, New York Shakespeare Festival Public Theater because the work that he did there. And that was the golden age of that theater, not just because of Chorus Line, but that was a time when uh, Papp shows were really um, so impressively in, um, making Broadway productions because there was Two Gentlemen of Verona, which won the Tony, and Sticks and Bones, which won the Tony, and that championship season, which won the Tony, and that very acclaimed production of Much Ado About Nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, really, those early years of the 70s were really tremendous successfully years for um, the Pap Theater. And there was Bernard Gerstein, associate producer for so many of those and for all of those, actually. And um, so and a very nice guy. So approachable. I saw him in so many lobbies where people came up and said, Mr. Gerstein, can I ask you a question? And you could tell that he was giving his attention to those people. I also had wonderful experiences with his wife, Cora Kahan. So um, mm. a nice couple.
He, as I said, I've been reading this wonderful book, Free for All, which is about the history of the public theater and, and Joe Papp. And I had just read this whole section in there, and there it was in the, in the New York Times obituary. It says, um, though Mr. Papp was the driven public face of the Shakespeare Festival, many theater people have said that Mr. Gersten was an almost equal partner. The two men were complementary, to be sure, with Mr. Gersten willing to take on the task that Mr. Papp hated, accounting, advertising, dealing with agents, and mending the fences that the quick to, a- that the quick to anger Mr. Papp was prone to tear down. In 1971, and I had just read this in the book, both of their uh, accounts of it, Papp and, Ger- and Gersten, in 1971, after pleading with New York City to help solve the public theater's financial crisis, Mr. Papp stormed out of a meeting with the all-powerful Board of Estimate rather than respond to criticism about the way he ran his theater. Only Mr. Gersten's swift apology, witnesses said, persuaded the board to approve the city's purchase of the theater's building, giving Mr. Papp the relief he sought. So it's almost definite that that there would have been no uh, no public theater at their home on Lafayette Street if it wasn't for Bernie Gerson. And I believe that that the uh, deal they worked out was that they leased it from the city for a dollar a year. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. And so. then and then just quickly the the ultimate rift between the, these two men, which is so sad, happened because uh, after the tremendous success of a chorus line, mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Gersten wanted the public to co-produce ballroom. ballroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, Joe Papp did not want to because he didn't like it i think mm-hmm. and he also th- mm-hmm. thought it was risky and of course he turned out to be right because it it was a big flop but i wonder if i'm not sure when i read uh, it didn't sound like they were ever planning to start it at the public um if they had done that maybe it might have been a different story uh, rather than opening cold on broadway where it really didn't run very long at all but that was um that was a uh, the rift between them and and that ended in an incredible era. Mm. Okay, so that wraps it up for this morning. I'm going to drop in something here. Um, a friend of mine is doing a reading of his show tonight at 7 p.m. on Zoom as well. It's called The Green Room, and it's a very interesting play. It's about 90 minutes long. If you'd like to attend The Green Room reading via Zoom, drop me an email, and I will send you an invite to that. Uh, it's a really... I think it's a really good play, and I I think that it's going to be a a fun reading. So if you'd like to come to it, come on to it. And uh, I'd like to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time with this new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to find a podcast, you can get Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com, as well as links to some of the things that we've talked about today, including including um, the New York Times uh, cast album starter guide <laughs> and uh, all the different shows we talked about and those two videos of Hugh Jackman singing from Carousel at, at uh, Carnegie Hall. So uh, check those out. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? The question was, why are these songs in this specific order? Don't Be the Bunny, You're in Town, Reach on Your Feet, 
Mind Till Monday, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, Fabulous Feet, The Tap Dance Kid, Soldier's Gossip, Passion, Lambert's Quandary, Ambassador, Times Square Ballet, On the Town, Donna, Hair. Remember, you weren't looking for the reason why they're in this order. It's not a what do they have in common question. Um, oh, I'm sorry, you are looking for a reason why they're in this order. It's not a why, uh, what do they have in common question. Now, if you listen carefully last week, I said, well, reading them, the Times Square Ballet, and then immediately corrected myself and said Times Square Ballet. <laughs> and Brigadude was smart enough to say, that's what tipped me off, <laughs> that it must have had something to do with the letters. And um, so if you look at Don't Be the Bunny, the first two letters are D-O, Reach, R-E, Mind Till Monday, M-I, in other words, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. That's wow. what it was. <laughs> Chris Skiles was the first to get it, followed by Brigadude, Richard Carey, and Ingrid Gammerman. What about Tony Janicki? He came up with two answers that were so convoluted that <laughs> I'm telling you, <laughs> not since I've seen All-American where Professor Fedorsky tried to teach a football team how to play the game by using logarithms have I ever been so confused by anybody. <laughs> so anyway, let's see how he does this week and everybody else too. You know, although we've been labeling these questions trivias, I've often said they're really brain teasers, puzzles really than trivia because trivia questions really involve a long ago detail that was never earth shatteringly important in the first place. Mm. So now let's have a true trivia question. Good Lord. I sound like all the solemnity of Alice Trebek when he announces a <laughs> true daily double. You know, are there false daily doubles? No, that's not the question. This is what musical refers to Ethel Merman as Essel Merman. Hmm. All right. If you have an answer to that, you can email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. You know how people have these little habits that get you down? Like... Bernie. Bernie liked chew gum. No, not chew. Pop. So I came home this one day and I'm really irritated and I'm looking for a little bit of sympathy. And there's Bernie lying on the couch, drinking a beer and chewing. No, not chewing. Popping. So I said to him, I said, you pop that gum one more time. And he did. So I took the shotgun off the wall and I fired two warning shots into his head. Ah!